2: We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, "Paint Sue Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live, to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly
1: defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely.
2: Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Nuanced Life. Thank you for joining us. If you are not on Instagram, come follow us over there Mm -hmm. on The Nuanced Life and Pantsuit Politics. We do a lot of personal things in both spaces and would love to meet you there. We also give away books, I am so excited that we're giving away a copy of Laura Vanderkam's Off the Clock to a listener who I just, you know, randomly selected through our drawing. It turns out that she and her family are in the path of Hurricane Florence. They are all suffering from stomach bugs while they are dealing with the effects of the hurricane. And I just felt like it was divine intervention that we were able to put a little sunshine in her life Mm -hmm. with this book. And there will be lots more of that. So head on over to Instagram at The Nuanced Life to stay connected with us.
1: Well, and let's dive into the commemoration commemorations because there's a stomach bug related one that I think is amazing. We got a commemoration from Leslie. It says, a stomach virus has been making its way through my family over the last week. The 18 month old got it last. Apparently she has been carefully watching her older siblings because it didn't take her very long to figure out how to vomit into the bucket So now I can proudly say that all of my children are vomit trained I look forward to this milestone much more than potty trained I don't really mind changing diapers But when my children have figured out how to aim for a target whilst expelling the contents of their stomachs My life gets significantly easier The little one has also recently mastered up going up and down the stairs safely without assistance This is another milestone that I feel is often underappreciated There is so much less stress in my life now that I don't have to constantly remember and remind the older kids to make sure the baby gates are closed. Amen to that, sister. Amen to that. I thought this was hilarious. Y'all are going to hate me. My kids don't really vomit. Oh, I shouldn't have said that because I'll probably get like 16 stomach viruses this year, but I can appreciate why this isn't a very important milestone. I just think that was the best commemoration.
2: It's as real as it gets, and that's where mm-hmm. life is. Sometimes it's in those details. That's why we say caregiving's important. That's right. If you can't appreciate how significant it is for your kids to vomit on their own, then you need to spend some time with some other humans. Mm-hmm. We also heard from Megan, who closed on her first house last month. Her house is a cute little 1950s home in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, and we love it, she says. However, purchasing my home is not my commemoration. Last Sunday when we got home from church, I went to look for something in my basement only to find my worst nightmare, wet carpet. Our water heater bit the dust and flooded my family room all within less than a month of home ownership. After a ton of trips to Home Depot, calls to our home warranty company and tons of different plumbers, HVAC repair people, and who knows who else we finally got a new hot water heater after a week of cold showers it was stressful difficult and pushed my poor husband and i to the edge especially just a few weeks after the stressful work of shopping for and purchasing our house but we made it we got through our first major house repair emergency mostly unscathed and i feel like that's something to celebrate amen to that
1: amen to that we got this right after beth had our own basement drama so y'all were living through it together
2: We were, while we were in New York, we got a call from my brother in law, who happened to go down the basement in my house. And we had wet carpet as Mm. well and Mm. water two, three inches up the walls. My husband has taken all our baseboards off and drilled holes in the wall and pointed fans at them to get all the moisture out. It has been a real thing. 99.999% of it has fallen on Chad's shoulders, and he has been a champ about it. So I should do a little Chad commemoration here, too, because I'm so grateful that I married someone who knows what to do in these situations. Honestly, I look at it, and I'm just like, yikes, this is a mess. (laughs) But Chad sees... Tasks. He yeah. knows what to do. So I'm really grateful for that.
1: Well, we have a husband-related commemoration from McKinsey. She says, several months ago, my husband apologized for not being able to be more supportive of my ambitions as a musician. He just works too many hours to be much help. My first thought was shame for being ambitious. My second thought was that ambition is not actually shameful, and I should just go for it anyway. It is difficult to take the time to improve my music because so much of the work I need to do is unpaid but I've been doing it anyway. Since that conversation, I have been going away outside my comfort zone to ask for help with my kids from neighbors since I don't have any family close, doubled my teaching studio, released an album that has sold very few copies, and just failed my first audition last week. I'm very proud of all these things. I'm rejecting the messages I've heard my whole life, spoken and unspoken, that I should be content to be small.
2: Hear, hear, Mackenzie, hear, hear. I want some music or celebratory sounds for Mackenzie because you are living your life, Mackenzie. I'm so proud of you and happy for you. Mm -hmm. And you cannot imagine how many people are going to hear that, especially the part about I haven't sold a lot of copies. I failed my audition and understand that, like, that's what it is. That's what this whole thing is. And if you can do it, they can do it, too. So that is awesome. Mm Megan says, This might sound a little silly. Megan, don't apologize. Yeah. It's perfect. Y'all don't sound up. Ap- y'all
1: stop apologizing for your commemorations. A lot of people
2: do that. This is a no, they're ap- perfect the and no beautiful. apology zone. But I am learning a lot about self care, and part of that is thanks to you. After enduring loads of self abuse in graduate school while denying any form of self care, I have discovered how important it actually is and have committed to not denying that aspect of life anymore. Recently, while on a trip to Atlanta, I had the best sleep I think I've had as an adult. I'm 32, after which I did not wake up sore or stiff or any of the morning discomforts that had become the norm for me. I've been having some pretty severe neck pain, and it was amazed that I had none of it after a night in that hotel. As silly as it sounds, the two nights of sleep in that hotel room were life-changing for me, as I realized that I had been blaming myself for any discomfort I had, telling myself it was because I was getting older, had gained weight, or I wasn't exercising enough, as if only young, fit people deserve good, good sleep. It had never occurred to me that sleep didn't have to be that way, and that a good chunk of my life could be drastically improved with a better mattress and pillows. So even though I'm normally a very frugal person and will put my needs last for the sake of saving money, I decided on the way home to purchase a new mattress and pillows, no matter how much I needed to dispend. I crowdsourced information and recommendations, did a lot of research, and purchased a Casper mattress, which was delivered to my house yesterday and provided my husband and me the most comfortable night of sleep we've had in our own home. It's a lot of words to inform you that I bought a new mattress, but the whole experience has really opened my eyes to my thought processes and just how many things I blame on myself. My new mattress is a symbol of my experience of waking up, pun intended, to some of my more subtle self-criticisms as well as better ways to care for myself. Listen. This one was also my favorite because this
1: is a huge moment of adulthood. My husband and I were sleeping on his like, I'm not even kidding, like $179 mattress from law school for so long. And you, it it is, you just have to have that moment in adulthood where you're like, wait a minute, what kind of mattress am I sleeping on? And then you change it and you're like, why have I been living like this? It's, it's a huge, everybody, I think everybody has that moment, unless I guess you're like grew up in a... Somebody in a family that took mattresses very seriously, which I'm sure there are some. But it's just a sort of a, you don't think about it. And then you're just using what was passed down or what you had. And then you get a new mattress. And it's just, it's life-changing. I also have another mattress-related revelation everyone needs to hear, too. If you have a really nice mattress, you love your mattress and your pillow, but you're still waking up sort of sore in certain spots when you sleep, I mean, we've had the Bruxism beat here on The Nuance Life, so it could be that you're grinding. But like I'm talking like body soreness, you should switch sides of the bed. They say everyone should switch sides of the bed every six months or so because it it just shifts the way you sleep and the positions you sleep. So you're not putting all that pressure on the same positions in your body. So if you're also having problems and you
2: don't think it's your mattress, try switching sides of the bed. That's my other. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm.
1: True story. True story.
2: Everybody should switch every once in a while. Sleep is important. It did yeah. not sound silly to me to say that two nights of sleep were life changing. Heck no. I honestly think that our problems right now in life are that we do not sleep enough, we do not get loved enough, and we don't have hard conversations. Mm-hmm. If we could fix those three things, we are nailing it. I mean, I'm positive. Here's the real talk I have
1: a Fitbit. I do not have it because I like to track my steps. I mean, I do like to track my steps, and I think that's important. I like it tracking my sleep. I love waking up in the morning and be like, Fitbit. Tell me how my sleep was. I like watching little green stars pile up. Mm,
2: I love a good night's sleep, and I like to track it and see how good I'm doing. We also heard from Nicole, who recently moved in with her boyfriend, commemoration on its own, to an apartment with a balcony space suitable for gardening. She says I finally committed to actually buying plants and attempting to keep them alive. I've wanted a mini garden for so long and I'm excited to finally start. I'm growing various herbs and vegetables and I couldn't be happier. There's so much fresh green living energy in my life at the moment and I feel like I'm constantly learning with this new challenge. Even as this feels silly to share, it's not. I do find it important to share a little joy as so much in the world right now is chaotic it's comforting to walk onto my balcony and see that living things endure on i love that good for you nicole and again not silly not even a little silly it is a big deal i'm telling you what we are growing tomatoes right now and they're finally starting to ripen I have a little party in my head every time I pull one tiny red cherry tomato mm-hmm. off that plant.
1: It's something it's special. It really is. feels
2: like you're connected to something bigger than yourself. It does connect you to something bigger than yourself. I think that's a very big deal, and I'm excited for you, Nicole.
1: Well, next up, we – can I sing again, Beth? Because I sing on Pants sing. Flow. Okay. No, go ahead and sing. All right. Next up. We're going to talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. I mean, it's just so you have to sing that song if you're going to have an episode where you talk about sex. It's just like legally required.
2: Mandatory. And we got the best message from a listener that we can't wait to share with you.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
2: All right, Sarah, we got this email from one of our Canadian friends, and here it is. I'm a very new listener, and while cleaning my house to help prepare for the new school year, I'm 46, and my kids are 11 and 13, I find myself in a different posture with regard to sex. I feel very much like Sarah. I am not a particularly touchy-feely person. When my kids were small, I also couldn't bear sex, not only because I was tired, we were still sorting out the logistics of running a household with two income earners, which is by no means sorted out even at this point, but because I had been touched or touching kids about 300% more than I needed. I will admit that I pushed my husband away, and perhaps he lost interest or the will to try. I will own that. But now that my kids are older, less hands-on, I find I am horny. I can't believe I said that. (laughs) Now he isn't interested either for any number of reasons. The notion that men always want sex and women don't is pervasive. And although this was the case for a time, I crave sex more than my husband, which brings a whole other level of shame and makes me doubt my attractiveness to my husband. I'm scared to talk to my husband about my desires and fears. Maybe that's more of the problem, but he has zero desire to go to a therapist. Have you guys done an episode where women have more libido than their husbands and how to break that cycle? If not, can you? Surely I'm not the only one.
1: Mm. So good. So I've definitely had episodes like this in my own marriage for sure.
2: Oh, have I'm glad that you have. I have not had this in my marriage yet. And so I'm glad that you've experienced it. When
1: we were first married, in particular, and my husband was still in law school, um, my libido far outpaced his, and it was a source of much marital strife. And other times in our marriage where his libido outpaced mine, it was a source of much marital joking, where I was like, hey, sucker, you had your moment. You missed it. Um, No, that's just a joke. But It is hard. I like it. It's hard no matter which way it falls, I think. And it's inevitable because you have two human beings with two human bodies and hormone levels and stress levels and health levels. I mean, it's just, of course, this is going to happen.
2: That makes a ton of sense to me. It has been me and our marriage so far going through downturns, mostly related to when I'm just not feeling good. Mm -hmm. As our longtime listeners know, I have fibromyalgia. It comes in cycles. There are times when I feel great well, my version of great. And there are times when I feel really, really bad. And during those down times, I have been the one who I know has been very frustrating to live with. That's really tough. And I I think what's so
1: unfortunate is that instead of, it's like the lack of intimacy sort of dominoes into further, like, shields and walls and protecting your vulnerableness because you already feel vulnerable because there's this mismatch. So instead of just, you kind of like barricade in as opposed to just saying, okay, well, I'm already vulnerable. So I might as well be be more vulnerable. So you can say like, hey, this makes me, because inevitably the other person feels like it's about their attractiveness because that's what our society tells us sex is about when it's not. So we feel vulnerable. So we kind of pull back from further vulnerability so we can't say, hey, it's because of this. And I honestly think so often it is a like physical hang up, even to the point of like, like I said, hormonal imbalances that maybe need to be addressed with with outside help or psychological issues. And then still they just it's like when you're when you try to when your intimacy is met with rejection or your re- request for intimacy is met with rejection even in the closest, most long-term relationships, it's just – it's almost instinctual that we kind of like ball up and protect ourselves when really I think so much frustration could be prevented by saying, hey, this is how this makes me feel. So the other person can say, oh, my gosh, of course that's not it or, or you know, whatever
2: the case may be. But I think it's just – it's hard when you feel rejected. It's hard when you feel rejected. It's hard when you know you're the person causing that for the other person. And I think it's helped me a lot to understand what sex represents in our marriage beyond just the act itself. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think I really got until I started listening to lots of Esther Perel that it felt like rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, I I was in such a selfish state during these especially early in our marriage when I was really feeling terrible and didn't know how to manage it yet and didn't really even know how to talk about it, I was just in such a self-absorbed place that I couldn't conceptualize the fact that I was leaving Chad feeling rejected. Mm -hmm. Just That didn't even make sense to me, right? And I would notice it causing all this other disconnect in our relationship. And if I'm being honest, I think I sort of resented that, because I thought, like, is that all we are, right? Mm-hmm. And as I'm with a lot more life experience and understanding, now I recognize, of course, it's not all we are. But it is a really important part of who we are and how we stay connected with each other. And that disconnect was not just him drifting from me. It was me drifting from him, too, because even if I don't feel like it. I need this as well. It's incredibly validating to spend this time with your partner in this particular way. And that's important for both of us. Even if I don't feel like raring to go, I need it.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's always so hard to conceptualize. Again, because we get so many busted messages culturally about sex that it is something I don't really feel like, well, I feel like we get the message that men need sex. I don't think we get the message as much that women need sex. And not just sex, but intimacy, that this is part of a very complex puzzle of psychological needs that humans have. And because we get these very sort of simplistic messages about it, Again, when you're already feeling vulnerable and rejected, it is very difficult to step back and kind of check the narrative you're telling
2: yourself. It is. And I think that would be my first thing I want to communicate on behalf of those of us who've been the downturn in the sexual part of the relationship. Like, please understand that often when that happens, the person is so stuck in themselves that they can't recognize like you're you're experiencing a whole set of things that aren't even operating in their minds because it's just a self-absorbed period and so while the other person is over here feeling like am i not attractive enough am i should i feel ashamed that i want this whatever like that's not even making it into the other person's atmosphere. Sometimes, mm-hmm. at least that's been my experience. It's it, I've never not been interested because of anything having to do with my husband. It's always that I'm stuck in myself and I can't crawl out of that.
1: Well, Anne, if you can show me a human being who is capable in the moment in a moment of rejection to being able to like, let me really think what the other person is going through, then let's get that person a parade. Because yep. that is really, really hard. And I do think you have to just leave space to a little bit of space to just kind of be up, be upset, be hurt, lick your wounds a little bit and get some space before you can have a conversation. I don't think the space, you know, the night whenever somebody's ready and somebody's tired is the night to have a big, long, in-depth emotional conversation about this.
2: No, that's right. And here's the other thing that I don't really know how to talk about, and I'm hoping that you can help me, Sarah. So, in the midst of this entire societal conversation that we're having about not having coercive sex, essentially, I struggle with how to say what has been my experience in the context of my loving relationship where I desire a healthy sex life with my partner, which is kind of Some of what I've learned from Laura Vanderkam about how you spend your time, that often we're ripping off our anticipating self and our remembering self because our experiencing self is tired or something. Mm -hmm. I have definitely learned in the context of sex that my anticipating self and remembering self deserve for my experiencing self to sometimes just say, yeah, I'm tired, but this is worth it. And that's hard to talk about when we're trying to say to everyone, no, you should never feel pressure to do this. It's a different if I think it's a different analysis, but I, f- I feel myself sort of tripping over my words as I, as I think about it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, because, look, sometimes—because I think you have to acknowledge sometimes you don't need sex, and sometimes intimacy is something that someone has no capacity left to give inside a marriage— There are going to be times due to caregiving or grief or or illness or whatever that that is just not going to be a part of a really close, intimate relationship, too. You know, so you have to leave space for that, first of all. Like, sometimes, yeah, like there's just not going to be sex in a relationship. That's okay. I think you also have to acknowledge that that intimacy can look—there is a universe of options for intimacy. So— It's not always, you know, sex to orgasm is the only option here with regards to physical intimacy with your partner. So sort of making space for that inside the conversation. Because there's just so, you know what I mean? Like there's just, when you're saying, when you're trying to say like, this is a thing that I need, that I have to acknowledge. Like sometimes in the moment I'm like, ugh, but I want to kind of shine on doing it anyway, like exercise. (laughs) Which it also is exercise. But At the same time, there's all these other things like when you like when you really shouldn't exercise because you're physically injured or emotionally spent. And when sometimes exercise can look like this is a good analogy. Sometimes exercise can look like gentle stretching and yoga. And sometimes exercise can look like running a marathon. You know, like so I think you have to like think through all those things. And plus, this exercise is a team sport. So, sometimes it's about your own physical body playing the team sport. sometimes it's sometimes it's about the state of the team itself, you know, like there's there's a lot here. I'm really proud of this
2: analogy. I think it's very good. I think it's a very good analogy, too, and part of what's helpful about it is the thing that I have learned over the past few years, which is I just need to be able to communicate those things without putting a bunch of shame on myself in the process. yeah, right. So I'm much better now now that I understand. That I'm creating a situation that makes Chad feel rejected. Thank you, Esther Perel, for mm-hmm. helping me with that. When I'm not feeling well, I'm much better now at saying, I'm I'm just not feeling well. I really wish that I were in a different space. Mm-hmm. Or here's what I'm in a space for. But this is going to be off the table for me right now. And I feel okay about doing that because I know that even though I still wish that it were not true when it happens um, at least I'm able to say to my partner I love you I desire you I desire this aspect of our relationship I'm just I'm in a holding pattern on it right now because of these things that are going on with me
1: yeah and that's I mean listen a holding pattern is hard I also I think we have this perception that people like I said at the beginning that married people are people in an intimate relationship it's almost like we define the relationship like You're in this—it's only an intimate relationship if you are aligned all the time. That's what defines it as intimacy. That's what defines it as a good marriage or a good relationship is you're just, like, always on the same page. That is some grade A bull right there. Like, that is not how it works. It's almost like—I love—that's why I love that Alain de Botton interview on— On being. On being so much because I think he said—I think his definition is so much better, which is intimacy is built on basically never being aligned— And working together anyway. That's what makes it intimate and awesome in a great relationship is when you're almost never on the same page and you're working through it anyway. So
2: also good listen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I listened to Steven Snyder in an episode called Why Sex Therapists Don't Care About Orgasms on the goop. We talk about my obsession with the Goop podcast on fancy politics, and I know there are issues with it. So you can go over there and hear my disclaimer about it here. I want to say I thought this was a really good episode because he says, like, essentially, here's what sex is supposed to do for you. And I felt like it was a much healthier definition than any cultural messages. Sex should make you feel dumb and happy. Like it should be an experience where you are so absorbed in the present moment that you can't think about anything else. And you feel like you probably lost a few IQ points in the process because that's just where you are. You're super absorbed in it. And I thought, you know what? Dumb and happy. That is so much more achievable than anything else. And he says that this is a place for the exercise of healthy narcissism. Mm-hmm. So he was very critical of like all of the sort of Cosmo seven ways to blow his mind. kind. He's like, no, you just if you show up and you are excited about what's happening, wh- whether it goes into orgasm or not, like you can both have that dumb, happy experience where you feel extremely validated by the other person. And what I, the analogy that he had that I loved is that we don't, we don't even need to have intercourse really. You should, like, every act of intimacy with your partner, it should be like, wow, those appetizers are phenomenal. Those were really great appetizers. Oh my gosh, we get to have. A main dish? This is amazing. (laughs) I love this restaurant. You know, and then if you get to intercourse and orgasm, it's sort of like, wow, they have dessert here, too. I can't believe it. You know, but instead of it all feeling like there's so much pressure attached to it. And I wonder, especially when you have a situation where I know this is true for me as a female partner who has physical health issues, I can imagine that a male partner with low libido particularly has concerns about being able to see your way all the way through dessert sometimes, right? And if we could take some of that pressure off, I wonder if that might help, too.
1: I have a very vivid memory of a professor from our days at Transylvania University. Do you remember Professor LaMonico? She's still alive, but do you remember her? I do her? remember her. She was mm-hmm. fantastic. It's fantastic, I'm sure. She's not longer at Trans East when her current job, but she taught cultural anthropology. And I took a class with her called— Something in the culture, in the human body. I don't know. We talked about a lot of things. But I'll never forget. I also went to Italy with her, which I think is where this conversation took place. We were talking about all kinds of things. And she said – she was always – she's always, she's very global, very sort of worldly. And she said, Americans are orgasm-obsessed. And I'll never forget it. It really rocked my party. And sort of – you know, it's just one of those things when you're young and you learn, you're like, oh, that's – there's another – there's other things? Like, oh. And she was just like, you know, that's just not what intimacy is about. Other people around the world, they do not – act as if every single act of intimacy needs to end in both parties simultaneously orgasming. <laughs> like that is just not a thing in other parts of the world we made that up um, and I think I learned that at a very instrumental age and sort of ease the pressure and I thought it was a very helpful statement because I think he's right I think uh, we just become obsessed with that and it makes me feel better that there are medical professionals also acknowledging that this is an unhealthy obsession of our culture.
2: Well, if you think about that dumb, happy, validated feeling, I mean, it is easy to recall that way before you're sexually active with like your first boyfriend, right? Like you kiss somebody and you have that dumb, happy, validated sensation. And so I think it's just remembering that like this should all be really fun and really connecting. The other thing that Dr. Snyder said in this interview that I found helpful was that a good guidepost for frequency, which I think is a question that everybody has? Oh my god, It's has. the first question. Why are we so obsessed with that as well? Yeah, he says about once a week is about right, and I was like, Thank that you. is so helpful. Thank you, Thank you for, for just answering, answering that question. question. Jeez, because they all they all hedge their bets and they're like, oh, every couple and this and every and there's no one right <laughs> answer. Thank you for just giving an answer, dude. Super helpful." That's what I said. Like, I said thank you out loud in my kitchen when he said that. I was like, it's just good to know. Like, that's a good baseline. Yeah. Just once a week. And he said, now, he used the word sacrament about it, which I didn't love. But he said, you you should just kind of approach it like, this is a ritual that's important to our marriage or our partnership, right? And about once a week is a really good frequency to engage in that ritual. And I thought, that's beautiful. And I dig that. And that seems like a good way to sort of calibrate, like, even when my experiencing self is exhausted or something, I could say, but but about once a week feels about right. And I want to invest in that.
1: Well, and let me just clarify and add another layer to the once a week. So... In my head, I immediately thought, okay, once a week averages to four times a month because the frequency of sex for me is very dependent on my hormone levels and where I am in my cycle because I'm not on any birth control. So, you know, I'm just riding those hormone rapids all alone. And when I learned sort of about um, how hormones affect your libido, how libido rises and falls based on where you are in your cycle, that really, really helped me and helped me ease up on the bad self-talk related to libido and sex, you know, in my life. Because once I heard somebody say like, you know, at the end of your cycle, all these hormones bottom out and you're just, there's a reason you're not in the mood because you can't get pregnant, but you know, you got to listen to your body. And it's not to say like, oh, don't ever worry about having sex then, but just think about, like the different kind of experiences you might need or the different kind of interactions that might be better suited to that time in your cycle. And that was really helpful for, to me. So I'm not going to be, because of my hormones, I'm just going to confess right now, I will, be not, I will not be marching lockstep through one time a week because the weeks are going to be really different depending on where I am in my cycle. But I think an average of like, you know, four, times, four or five times a month, if you average that out, that sounds about right to me.
2: I also don't take birth control and have that same feeling of just my hormones are very strongly influential in lots of parts of my life, and this one too. And I think that's fine, and that's where I prefer to be compared to what I get on birth control, which is miserable. Oh, Lord, it's the devil. Can I just tell you, too, it reminds me of the the mattress
1: conversation we had because you know how, like, when you start to, like, really because like I took birth control a lot when I was a teenager it it's the orientation of your cycle is I don't know why they put the sugar pills at the end for your period your period is the beginning of your cycle not the end of it but whatever that's another soapbox but you know you're just kind of like you don't really pay attention because you're on birth control and then you get off birth control and you start to learn about your cycle especially if you're trying to get pregnant and when you ovulate and all these things and it's I feel like that the realization I had like oh my god I slept on a better mattress and this was life-changing is when I realized I always had like super sexy dreams right when I was ovulating I was like my body is so small like I kind of put all those pieces together because I you know I think before I just thought like oh yeah I have randomly really sexy dreams about George Clooney whenever or you know whoever um Taylor Kitsch maybe and I just but when you put the pieces together and you're like oh my gosh I always have those dreams at the same time every month it's like so
2: it's so eye-opening you're like man dang hormones are so powerful I totally agree with that I I think that just because of our age, like a lot of us were put on birth control at a really young age by some yep. gynecologist when we said, my period isn't fun. They were like, oh, well, let's put you on birth control to be fine. Cool. Let's do this. That's yeah, a terrible good. idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm really mad yep. about it still when I think about it. But, yes, life gets better, I feel like, for the most part, when you're off birth control for many of us. Now, if you need it, please take it. And I'm grateful that it's there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but for me... I am totally at the mercy of my hormones in a lot of ways, powerful, happy ones and some really difficult ones. And I still thought that once a week guidepost, exactly like you said, if you just know like, oh, about four times a month. But the other thing I wanted to say when you were talking about that is that I think we also go in spurts because when you are having lots of sex like you want to do it more often like like it's easy to get yeah. into this rhythm of like every day for a while mm-hmm. and similarly to our canadian friends dilemma here when you stop it's like hard to get started again yeah and i think either way so so knowing that like there's sort of a healthy baseline of about once a week and you could just kind of remember that That seems so much more attainable than, oh, we need to get back in that rhythm of every day. Right. Just opening the door to each other again seems like a really good place to begin.
1: I'm sorry. Was there ever a rhythm of every day? Did I miss something? Every day. Lord, who has the time? (laughs) I mean, it happens here.
2: That's all I'm saying. No way, dude.
1: I mean, back when I was like a honeymooner and didn't have all these children up in my grill all the time. But I, th- th- I think the frequency thing is, oh man, that is another, I don't know, I don't know if, I mean, look, I'm only, I've only lived as an American in my life, so I don't know if
2: that's an obsession other places
1: in the world, but sure as heck is an obsession here. Well,
2: it's just because I think that all of our stuff about this is should. Mm-hmm. I should be doing this. I should be ramping up the drama of it every single time. No, 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 no. Yep. You should you should be feeling dumb and happy and validated, and that's it. I loved that language from this guy. I was like, okay, these are the only objectives. I don't need to feel like I am in some adult film here. Just dumb, happy, validated. I got it. So just lowering the pressure for everyone, I hope, helps. I don't know if we've given much guidance to our listener, but I just want you to know that um, on behalf of those of us who cause these problems sometimes... You know, thank you for your patience and grace, and I hope for you that it evens out again soon. Up next, we're going to share a little piece of inspiration to keep you going throughout the week. I think everything in life boils down to what does Marianne Williamson have to say about this? Man, speaking
1: of, we said this on Pantsy Politics, but since we were discussing the Goop podcast, there's a Marianne Williamson episode on the Goop podcast that I am still living for. It was so good.
2: So here's what she says about intimacy. Intimacy means that we're safe enough to reveal the truth about ourselves in all its creative chaos. If a space is created in which two people are totally free to reveal their walls, then those walls in time will come down. That was beautiful.
1: That's so good.
2: So all its creative good. chaos. Amazing.
1: Amazing. Well, thank you for joining us for another Let's Talk About Sex episode of The Nuanced Life. We will be back in your ears on Friday over at Pantsuit Politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.
2: The Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash thenuancelife. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.